This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the The Big Big Dinosaur Dinosaur Podcast, Podcast. where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And thank you to all our patrons for all your support. We really appreciate it. Every little bit helps, and we're still about halfway to our $200 mark where we're going to send out stickers to everybody with our logo on it. So... If you'd like to contribute, you can go to patreon.com slash I know dino and you can check out our creator posts and our videos and all that good stuff there. Our dinosaur of the day this week is Oviraptor and we have some dinosaur news. First in the news is a pretty fun article. It came from a Dino 101 update since we last took the class and luckily they published a little article on the University of Alberta website So we got to see the clip. Essentially, it's all about how dinosaurs ran and walked. So archosaurs that have tails have a muscle called the caudofemoralis that attaches their femur to their tail. And then when they swing their tail, it actually pulls their leg up and helps them walk and run. Now, the muscle attaches at several points, but the point where it attaches to the femur is easy to identify because it has a large crest And if it's a big muscle, you need bigger crests and attachment points. So paleontologists can use these different attachment points to determine just how big a muscle was. And by using some of these characteristics, they determined that predators like T-Rex and other tyrannosaurs had a very big caudofemoralis, even for their body size, because they were huge, so you'd expect them to have a huge muscle, but compared to a scaled-up alligator, for instance, they still had a huge caudofemoralis. And that means that they probably had very powerful legs. The attachment point on the bone itself actually matters too, just like we talk about the length of the femur to the humerus making a difference, and if you're a sprinter or not so much a sprinter, it matters where the attachment point is on how efficient and how much energy you can get out of your leg. So based on the attachment points, it appears that the T-Rex could have sprinted faster, but also probably would have tired more quickly than a hadrosaur would have. When I heard that, I thought that that's pretty similar to a cheetah and an antelope, since cheetahs can run at about 70 miles an hour, but only for a short burst. But something like the American pronghorn antelope can run for up to 60 miles an hour in a burst, or it can spend several hours running at 35 miles an hour, which is pretty insane. (laughs) So, I don't know, maybe that's a common thing in animals where prey has more endurance. I know that predators always need to be able to sprint, because otherwise how are you going to catch anything? 
but it's pretty cool to see some of that being figured out from these dinosaur bones. We keep seeing different estimates on how fast Tyrannosaurus rex could have moved. I think we've seen from as low as three or five miles an hour up to in the 30s. Yeah. I think they, one of the articles said it's really difficult to tell because they've never found prints of a running Tyrannosaur. They've only found walking prints. So you might be able to figure out how fast it could walk, but what, who cares? <laughs> the only thing we know for sure is Indominus Rex was faster. Yes, that's true. <laughs> At least in the Jurassic World movie. Next in the news, Emin Zoo in Holland is auctioning off fossils, including a 25-foot-long Harpocrisaurus, which is a duck-built dinosaur that lived 75 million years ago. Its nickname is Freya, and it was discovered in the 90s in Montana. It's estimated to sell for about 80,000 pounds. This auction's happening in West Sussex in the UK. Other fossils for sale include a saber-toothed cat, an ancestor to a horse, a rare shark, bats, a snake, some birds, and a pine cone. As one of our Facebook fans mentioned, it'd be best if another museum got the fossils so that they'd still be available to the public, but we'll have to see on June 5th when the auction happens. Interesting. Kind of surprised that a zoo is auctioning off fossils and not trying to negotiate things with private entities like other museums. Yeah, maybe they tried and no one was interested or just wasn't looking at the time. Could be. Duck-billed dinosaurs don't tend to draw big crowds and I don't think a pine cone does either, so maybe that's part of the problem. It's a very old pine cone. Oh, good. I'm probably insulting a lot of botanists out there, but good job, Garrett. It's a pine cone. <laughs> Next in the news is an article titled "Temporal and Phylogenetic Evolution of the Sauropod Dinosaur Body Plan," which I know is a big mouthful. It was published in the Royal Society Open Science written by Carl T. Bates and quite a few others. And from its title, it's a little bit hard to tell what they were looking for. And I get the feeling that in the beginning of their research for this paper, they weren't really testing a hypothesis, but they were more just trying to figure out if they could find out anything at all from the data that they had. We covered when Bates and others previously used computer modeling to do some estimates at how big the Dreadnoughtus was last year, Back then, they used 3D modeling to create a quote-unquote minimum convex hull around the bones, which is basically a mapping of dinosaur tissue on top of dinosaur bones in a computer. And they argued that using some modern tetrapods, they could estimate how much bigger the tissue would have been on the bones than that minimum convex hull shape. And that ultimately gave them an approximation of the dinosaur's actual size. Then they added the likely density of its tissue and removed some mass here and there for things like lungs, and they got an estimated weight for Dreadnoughtus. Their maximum value was 40 tons, which was significantly less than the 60 tons estimated by looking just at the femur alone, which is kind of the traditional way of estimating the weight of an animal. At the same time, they estimated that Giraffatitan and Apatosaurus probably had similar weights to Dreadnoughtus kind of calling into question just how imposing it would have been compared to other sauropods. But in this article, they took the same technique and basically tried to see if they could learn anything about how sauropod morphology changed over time. In addition to the previous method, they also allowed for relatively thicker tail and neck portions to test for center of mass variations. So you take the minimum convex hull, which is kind of like a super skinny version of the dinosaur. And then you say, what if it had a really thick neck relative to a skinnier rest of the body or really thick tail? 
and it actually included a little bit of the forelimbs and hind limbs along with that. But it obviously shifts the center of mass when you do that. So in the end, they show a weak correlation in sauropodomorphs. They started all the way at the beginning of dinosaur evolution with the early sauropodomorphs and went all the way through the titanosaurs. So they were looking at sauropodomorphs as a whole, which is all sauropod-like dinosaurs. And they showed a weak correlation between their center of mass moving towards the head and their size increasing. But the error of margin is so large that it's really hard to tell if it's significant. It didn't pass any statistical tests of significance. So you can really only talk about trends. You can't really talk about absolute values. They did find that there's a better link to center of mass changes within the specific sauropodomorph groups, which they believe shows an evolution in the animal's locomotion over time. When they graphed the sauropodomorph center of mass over time, they ultimately kind of broke it up into three phases. First, in the middle Triassic, the center of mass shifts towards the hips from nearer to the head, possibly due to going from four feet to two feet. And then second, in the late Triassic, the center of mass begins to shift towards the head again as their necks got longer and as they started using their front limbs as legs again. And finally, in the late Jurassic, there is a shift further towards the head in titanosaurs. They admit that this is very early research and not much can be determined with just this current knowledge. So they want to see more research into how center of mass affects extant animal locomotion so that it can be extrapolated into dinosaurs. I really like the modeling approach, especially when they use it to test hypotheses. And this is a good place to start when looking at sauropodomorphs and how they moved and how that might have changed over their evolution. But there is the saying that goes, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And I think... <laughs> That's pretty obvious in this case that they know that their model is wrong because they try to use so many possibilities to cover all their bases, but they just don't know exactly where to dial in the specifics yet. On May 7th, the St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site in southwest Utah opened a new set of tracks to the public. It's called the Lake Dixie Dinosaur Trail and there is a boardwalk that goes above the track so that you can get an up-close look at them. With this addition, the museum now has about twice as much exhibition space as it had before, and the tracks include an impression of a theropod dinosaur sitting down in the mud, as well as a two-legged dinosaur resting its hands on the ground. It also has running dinosaur prints, swimming prints, and a baby dinosaur footprint which is quite an awesome collection of dinosaur footprints and other prints. They're all kind of housed within a structure, a museum. It's in southwest Utah, so it's probably pretty far away from most of you guys. But if you're planning a road trip, it'd be a good place to stop. There are also a few footprints of crocodilians and mammals within the trackway, so it's kind of neat. Also in dinosaur footprint news... In Holyoke, Massachusetts, about two miles north from Springfield, there's a set of dinosaur footprints in sandstone, and they were discovered and identified in the 1970s during the construction of a small highway which runs next to the prints. They're on a roughly quarter acre of sandstone from about 190 million years ago, and there are larger tracks that are believed to be from a theropod like Dilophosaurus, 
but maybe from a prosauropod, depending on who's looking at them, because they're a little bit worn. They're not in super great shape. And there are also smaller tracks from a smaller theropod, likely a coelophysis or something similar. Luckily, they just passed a city ordinance to protect the footprints after some recent vandalism. It doesn't look like anyone was trying to destroy them or otherwise damage them intentionally, although one does have a, a circle carved in the rock around it as if someone was trying to carve it out of the rock without realizing that the bottom would still be attached after cutting a circle around the edge. <laughs> and the more common vandalism comes from people trying to make plaster casts of the footprints, and since the sandstone is pretty fragile, this often damages them. There was a sign up saying, please don't make any plaster casts of these footprints, but the ordinance was raised after police informed the city council that they knew the footprints were being damaged, but there weren't any laws to actually protect them. There was just a sign suggesting not to damage them, basically. So the new law puts a $300 fine per offense on excavating, removing, damaging, altering, defacing, exchanging, transporting, exporting, receiving, or offering any paleontological resources from the area. I think they covered pretty much all the bases. <laughs> there were some comments saying they didn't think $300 was enough, but I think the real key is just making it illegal so that the police can kind of have an incentive to watch over it a little bit. Next, the writer Brian Switek gave a glowing review of David Hone's The Tyrannosaur Chronicles, the biography of the tyrant dinosaurs, on The Spectator. This book is a comprehensive look of everything we know so far about tyrannosaurs, starting with small species that came about in the early days of dinosaurs to the big T-Rex and its cousins that are popular in the media. One interesting tidbit that Switek mentions in his review is the debate over whether T-Rex was a hunter or scavenger. Apparently the idea that it was a scavenger started with Jack Horner in the 90s, quote, as a way to kick the fossil hornet's nest and get his colleagues to test assumptions about the tyrannosaur's predatory abilities, end quote. But because Jack Horner is such a well-known paleontologist and there were TV documentaries made that talked about T-Rex being a scavenger, it became a popular theory instead of the usual methods of being based on a study or a fossil find. Switek says the book is a bit dry for people who are not dinosaur enthusiasts, but since we are dinosaur <laughs> enthusiasts, I plan on picking up a copy. Yeah, sounds cool. Yeah. So next, Inverse had this interesting article that talked about how the gold rush in the 1800s sparked interest in dinosaurs. So back then, not everyone could find gold, but some people still made money by finding dinosaur bones. Quote, because the Rocky Mountain region contained many fossil-rich quarries, the gold boom became the Apatosaurus boom and the Allosaurus boom and the Diplodocus boom. <laughs> the dinosaur rush was on, end quote. Money was a big motivation. There were a lot of fossils found through mining, which is why there's so many similarities between the two rushes. So American paleontology became big in 1877 when three major deposits of fossils were found in different regions. Unfortunately for the people who actually found the fossils, the only buyers at the time were Othniel Charles Marsh and Edward Drinker Cope, Bone Wars, and sometimes it took a year to negotiate a price. Interest in dinosaur fossil hunting popped up again in the early 1900s when natural history museums got a lot of funding, and then again in the late 90s when fossils were sold for millions of dollars, and I suspect Jurassic Park, I didn't mention that, but makes sense. Oh yeah. And commercial fossils are controversial because... Research institutions often can't afford to pay for popular fossils, and fossils in private collections aren't usually available for study, which is why it'd be great for the auction on June 5th for research institutions to hopefully get those fossils, but 
On the other hand, commercial fossil hunters are motivated to keep finding fossils, so hard to say which is better. Yeah, because if you don't have a market there driving interest in fossils, then they might just slowly decay or not, you know, there might not even be scientists out there looking for them, like through most of the middle of the 1900s. Yeah, exactly. So next, there's a slew of places getting new dinosaur replicas or repairing fair dinosaur replicas. So the first is the Jurassic Coast. It's going to be decorated with life-size dinosaur replicas as part of a Jurassic journey. And local businesses are sponsoring the dinosaurs. They have eight so far. Dinosaurs include Stegosaurus, and the project is currently looking for sponsors for T-Rex. And the plan is to place those dinosaurs this August. I wonder if they give them names after the sponsors. Could be. Like Starbucks Stegosaurus or something. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well. That's all green and white. Yeah. It says local businesses, so I don't know if there's a big change. Starbucks is everywhere. That's <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> Next, in Green Bay, Wisconsin, a fiberglass dinosaur in front of what used to be a Sinclair gas station is getting a makeover and a family. So this dinosaur is going to be painted green, and it's going to have six offspring, and this will be in time for the De Pere Memorial Day Parade. Stores in the area will hold contests where you can guess the weight and length of the dinosaurs. <laughs> the next dinosaur replica, this one was interesting. It's an article in the Daily Journal, and... It tells the history of a particular dinosaur in New Jersey, in the Berkeley Township, but it's told from the point of view of the dinosaur. And so it's a dinosaur roadside attraction, and it starts with, quote, For almost 86 years now, I have stood on Route 9 in Bayville watching the world go by, which for a dinosaur is no time at all, end quote. So this dinosaur has been there since 1932, and it started as a billboard for a taxidermy shop. And this dinosaur has had many different heads and a lot of changes over the years. So the taxidermy owner made its neck longer and then removed spikes that were on its back. And then in 1961, there was a new owner of the shop who owned the B&L Upholstery Company, and they added the spikes back as well as electric green light bulbs to the eyes and mouth and then gave it an even longer neck. Hmm. Then in 1968, the spikes were removed again, and then in 1975, it got a new head because the old one was broken up somehow. Then in 1979, the dinosaur got the nickname Ruggles from a, a local radio contest. And in 1980, a car crashed into the dinosaur and knocked its head off. So the head that replaced it apparently looked, quote, like a sick cow that was baying at the moon, end quote. And then in 1981, another car crashed into the dinosaur and it got another head. And then this happened again in 1996. <laughs> then it was painted purple because of Barney. Barney was popular at the time. Then in 1998, the dinosaur's head was stolen. The dinosaur was eventually repainted green, and I presume it got a new head. Then a truck hit the dinosaur. Jeez. But this time, it had a steel reinforcement in its neck, so the head didn't break off. And then in 2007, a new store, a paint store that owned the store next to the dinosaur, painted the dinosaur powder blue with children's handprints in different colors and gave it a new nickname, Virginia, after the store owner's grandmother. Then in 2015, last year, a car hit the dinosaur again. Since then, the paint store has gone out of business, and the dinosaur is now called the dinosaur, no nicknames, and it is in shrink wrap until it's fully restored. I think it should be moved a little further away from the road. <laughs> yeah, we, I, we talked about one or two of these incidents, not all like, what is that, a dozen car crashes it was in I think before. it's less than a dozen, but it's yeah. a lot. And at that time, I looked at pictures of it, and it is really close to the road. And it's one of those kind of rural highway type things. So 
it doesn't have like a curb or a median or anything, so it'd be pretty easy to pop into it. I guess it's so large. Are you falling asleep at the wheel and you don't notice and yeah. bam? This is why we need self-driving cars. <laughs> <laughs> so they could avoid the dinosaurs. Yeah. Not too far away from this New Jersey dinosaur, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, they're hosting a Dynamite Summer with 30 fiberglass dinosaurs decorated by local artists. And these dinosaurs are going to be around the city from May to August, and it's similar to the 2003 Cow Parade. And we've seen this in a couple other cities. I think I saw one city had a bunch of moose and have seen the cows. Yeah, they had wolves in North Carolina, and I think they did Snoopy's. In Minnesota for Charles Schultz's birthday or something one year. Yeah, so it'll be cool to see dinosaurs. Yeah. Additionally, Dynamite Summer will have outdoor movies and festivals, and they're making a special craft beer for the event called Burgosaurus Rex, and it's described as a summery cream ale with a hint of lemon. Also, every Tuesday in June, they're going to have a screening of a Jurassic Park movie, so 1, 2, and 3, and Jurassic World. Cool. Yeah, it sounds fun, but so far away. Yeah, pretty close to where the first articulated dinosaur was set up in South Jersey, though. Yeah. Next, there's a Richmond night market in Richmond, British Columbia, Canada, and they open up for the season between May and October every year. And this year they have a theme called Magical Dino Park. So the market opened up on May 13th, and again, running through early October, and there are 18 life-size animatronic dinosaurs. Apparently, some can spit water and others can roar. The dinosaurs were designed specifically for this night market, which sits on a 22-acre site and has a food court with 100 vendors, and the market's open every night from 7 p.m. until midnight. I wonder if we're going to be driving by that when we go on our road trip in a couple months. We'll have to look it up. Yeah, because we are going through British Columbia. Yeah, so we're going to be going on a road trip through parts of Canada and Montana, looking at dinosaur museums and other sites. Yeah, around the 4th of July. It should be fun. Mm-hmm. Next, there's a new dinosaur theme park called Lost Kingdom at Paltons Park, and it's opening up in the UK this year. And this park's going to have roller coasters, animatronic dinosaurs, and a Jeep expedition. There's also a ride where you travel in a dinosaur egg. Apparently, this theme park's been two years in the making. I'm curious about the dinosaur egg. I kind of think it might be like one of those spinny rides. Yeah, definitely. Like, what's the traditional one? Is it the teacup or something? Or I've you... seen all kinds. Teacups, yeah. sombreros. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty fun. I know you don't like them. Yeah, they make me feel sick. And they were fun when I was a kid. Next, Jurassic World, the exhibition at the Melbourne Museum is getting even cooler, if that's possible. Hmm. So on Friday nights in June, they're going to have Jurassic Nights open to visitors after dark. And in addition to being able to see all the animatronic dinosaurs, there's going to be drinks and DJ Jess McGuire. Sounds like a lot of fun. That does sound fun. I love the museums that do after-hours adult things. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, that's a bunch of happy dinosaur news, replicas, and theme parks and museums. But next is a couple of stories of dinosaurs that have not been doing so well the last couple weeks. Oh, no. I know. In New Jersey, there's a fire that completely burned one of the 90-foot robotic dinosaurs from Field Station Dinosaurs. Oof. It's a big fire. Yeah. Apparently, a welder was doing some last touches on an, an Argentinosaurus. Then there was a spark, and it burned to the skeleton. Oof. Fortunately, all 33 other dinosaurs are fine, so Field Station Dinosaurs is still set to reopen at the Overpeck County Park in Leonia in, I think, Memorial Day weekend, but I can't remember. 
There's plans to rebuild this Argentinosaurus too, which was supposedly the longest animatronic dinosaur in the world. That's a lot of latex or whatever skin substitute that they made yeah. to replace. It's cool though. Argentinosaurus, that's one you don't see in animatronic form very often. No, <laughs> definitely not. Next, thanks to Mark via Facebook for this one, a brontosaurus model was vandalized in West Midland Safari Park in the UK. A week or two ago, it was taken one night and then painted pink and found with graffiti next to it that said, coup de art. It's since been cleaned up, but as Mark put it, quote, what's with all the vandala raptors? <laughs> I, had to, I had to share that one, Mark. Thanks. That is good. <laughs> and that's it for the sad news. So next, thanks to Scotty for sharing this one. Maker Fair Bay Area 2016 featured some Kitrex cardboard dinosaurs. There's a picture posted that shows a life-size cardboard Deinonychus, called Velociraptor in the picture, but it's hugging a kid. And you can also build a dino hand puppet and other dinosaurs of different sizes. And these were designed by Lisa Glover, who I believe we've mentioned before on this podcast. Yeah, we talked about two different Kitrex Kickstarter campaigns that she did. One of them was little... I want to say like pterodactyl-like things. And then she had another one that I think was the miniature velociraptor out of cardboard. Yeah, that but, sounds right. But she made herself a full wearable <laughs> Deinonychus type costume. Yeah. So that might have been her inside that. Oh, maybe. Next, Technobob features images of a Barbie Power Wheels Jeep that was converted into a Jurassic Park Wrangler, and it looks amazing. I yeah, would, that was cool. I would have loved that as a kid, even now. <laughs> so it starts off, it's pink and purple, and then the parents removed the stickers, took everything apart, sanded it all down, and primed it with gray primer, repainted everything in Jurassic Park colors, reassembled, and then added Jurassic Park decals. And they added a lot of Jurassic Park decals. I think he said there was a license plate that his friends 3D printed or something for him. It's custom made, yeah. And then there was a little badge hanging from the review mirror and different stickers that looked like the map that was in the car and stuff like that. It looks just like the ones it in the does. movie. And with the pictures, the scale doesn't necessarily come across. You're like, wow, that guy recreated that really well. And then you realize it's just a toy. Yeah. Probably moves about as fast as the cars in the movie. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Where you get out and walk next to it, pretty much. Yeah. And last, stuff.co.new Zealand shares a dinosaur jars project. So there's not too many directions, but the picture looks cool. And you can basically add dinosaur figurines to the tops of jars to give them a little more pizzazz. You just have to make sure that the dinosaurs are the right size for the jars lid and use paint primers for metal lids. Cool. Yeah. And that's it for the news. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. 
And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now for our dinosaur of the day over Raptor which was requested from the user Triassic321 on YouTube. So thank you. And our first request via YouTube. So the name Ovaraptor means egg taker, egg seizer, egg thief, anything to do with taking eggs, really. George Olson discovered the bones in Henry Fairfield Osborne described Ovaraptor in 1924. It was a small theropod that lived in Mongolia in the Cretaceous. The first fossils were found on top of what were thought to be protoceratops eggs. The holotype is a partial skeleton with a crushed skull, which was found near a nest of 15 eggs. Osborne, interestingly at the time, also said the name Ovaraptor, quote, may entirely mislead us as to its feeding habits and belie its character, end quote, and he turned out to be right. The type species is Ovaraptor philoceratops, and the name philoceratops means lover of ceratopsians, and this is because they thought that Ovaraptor liked to eat protoceratops. Poor Ovaraptor, <laughs> getting a bad rap. It might have eaten protoceratops. There were a lot of other protoceratops found near where Ovaraptor was found. They thought also that the protoceratops was the one to crush the Ovaraptor skull. This still could have happened. Maybe a protoceratops stumbled upon the Ovaraptor in its nest and then the Ovaraptor died protecting the nest, the eggs. In the 1990s, scientists found nesting Ovaraptorids, such as Sidipati, which means the eggs found near Ovaraptor were probably Ovaraptor eggs and Ovaraptor was probably brooding. In 1994, similar looking eggs to the eggs found by Ovaraptor had Ovaraptor-like embryos. And one Ovaraptorid nest had two embryo-sized Velociraptor bones. And this may be an example of brood parasitism. Some modern birds do this, such as the Old World Cuckoo, where they lay eggs in other species' nests so that the other species end up taking care of the eggs. So it's possible that Velociraptor did that too. It's Sneaky. Yeah, it is. Clever girl. <laughs> anyway, it's unclear exactly what Ovaraptor ate. Possibly they still ate eggs. Though lizard remains were found in the stomach cavity of the only known Ovaraptor skeleton, so it was at least partially carnivorous, which is why maybe it did eat some protoceratops. Or Yeah, if they were young enough, I guess. Yeah, or scavenged or something. So Ovaraptor may have been omnivorous. It had a toothless beak. It had spikes on the roof of its mouth instead of teeth. 
and Osborne thought Oviraptor had a crushing jaw, that its toothless beak was an egg-piercing tool. In 1977, Barswold said the beak may have been strong enough to break clam shells. Wow. And clam and mollusk fossils were common in the same area as Oviraptor. Oviraptor is the type genus of Oviraptoridae, a family that Barsbold named in 1976. Osborne originally classified Oviraptor as an ornithomimid, probably because it was so bird-like. And other Oviraptorids include Sidipati, Conchoraptor, and Khan. These are feathered theropods that lived in Central Asia and were very bird-like. Creostonotes is also considered to be a close relative of Oviraptor. So Oviraptor, despite having raptor the name, is not a dromaeosaur. Sidipati and Oviraptor are very similar, and knowing what Sidipati looked like has helped with Oviraptor reconstructions. Scientists thought that Oviraptor had a crest like a cassowary on its head, but now they think that this distinctive crest was on Sidipati instead, and Oviraptor probably had a crest, but it's not clear the size or shape because the only skull found of Oviraptor was crushed. That's a pretty good comparison, though, comparing it to a cassowary Mm -hmm. in size and shape and stuff. Definitely. In 1976, Barsbold referred six other specimens to Oviraptor, but then later they were reclassified as Conchoraptor. There's also a large specimen with a distinct crest that was classified as Oviraptor in 1981, but on closer inspection has been tentatively reclassified as Sidipati. And this is actually the specimen where they base the idea of having a crest like a cassowary. So the crest may have been large and may have been U-shaped, and it may have been for display. There's skin impressions from other oviraptorosaurs, like Cauditerix and Protarchaeopteryx, that show that there were feathers on the body, wings, and tail, so oviraptor probably also had feathers. And oviraptor probably used its arms to help insulate eggs while brooding. It was very bird-like, its rib cage was very bird-like and rigid, and it had a parrot-like head. It was about six and a half feet or two meters long, weighed about 55 to 76 pounds or 25 to 35 kilograms, and it was bipedal with long legs, so it could probably move fast, like an ostrich. Ostriches can run up to 43 miles per hour, 70 kilometers per hour, although I don't think Oviraptor was quite that fast. It had an S-shaped neck, long tail, strong arms, curved claws on the hands and feet, and each of those had three digits. The claws were about three inches or eight centimeters long, and Oof. they had long grasping fingers. Oviraptor probably cared for its young, and it had muscular, flexible tails. Scott Persons and a team found that Oviraptor and its kind could hold their tails up at sharp, upward angles, so it's possible that male Oviraptors displayed tail feathers to attract mates, like a peacock. Hmm. They may have even done a mating dance. Scott and his team published about the tails in a study in 2015 called A Possible Instance of Sexual Dimorphism in the Tails of Two Oviraptorosaur Dinosaurs, and we talked about this study on our podcast. It was about two Oviraptorids nicknamed Romeo and Juliet who died next to each other. A large sand dune fell on top of them. They were about the same size and age, but Romeo had longer, more complex tailbones, like a peacock. And they're buried side by side for 75 million years. If you'd like, you can see Oviraptor in Ark Survival Evolved, and in that game, Oviraptor steals eggs for itself or its owner, and it gives a mating speed boost to all nearby allied dinosaurs. <laughs> I guess it may never totally shed that first impression. Yeah. I gotta start playing that game. There's so much cool stuff going on there. Yeah. So, Oviraptoroids lived in the Cretaceous in Mongolia, North America, and they used to be considered ornithomimids, but now they're part of Manoraptora. They're generally small with short skulls, toothless jaws, and crests on the skull, and they had feathers. And compared to other Manoraptorans, they have short tails. 
And our fun fact of the day comes partially from Coursera, specifically the course on theropod dinosaurs that I like so much. They mention that Antarctica is actually ruled by non-flying dinosaurs, which is pretty awesome. So penguins, specifically emperor penguins, are both the largest animals at up to 100 pounds or 45 kilograms and 4 feet and 122 centimeters tall on the entire continent. And they're also carnivores. So really, Antarctica is dominated by non-flying carnivorous dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> There's still avian dinosaurs. It would be cool if you could say they were non-avian dinosaurs, but just the lack of being able to fly doesn't make them non-avian. They're still birds. Yeah. But pretty awesome. It would be a fun thing to point out at a party or something. There is still a continent dominated by dinosaurs. It's Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And if you want to show your enthusiasm for dinosaurs, then please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Until next time. Good day.